Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change, a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah And we are very excited to have an esteemed guest with us, a historian, uh, an author, a podcast host, a founder of Progress Network. Um, I will kick it over to Wajahat because people have fallen in love, Waj, with your movie phone introductions. Even if they haven't fallen in love, I'm still going to do it. So it's one of those things they just have to tolerate. Uh, Zachary Carabell is the author of more than a dozen books. He has been a columnist. He, in 2003, was designated as a global leader for tomorrow by the World Economic Forum. He is host of the podcast, What Could Go Right? And he went to universities that rejected me and Danielle, including (laughs) Harvard. Zachary, thanks so much for joining us. Um, We're not bitter at all that... You, we are, you know, in the company of someone who went to elite institutions that thought me and Danielle were not worthy to grace their halls. But that's okay. Uh, you are, hey, are a lot of people. Slacker. For a lot of people, that's a disqualifier, not a not a good thing, right? So, and you also taught at these universities as a guest yeah. lecturer. Yes. I just want to throw that in there. That salt, yeah. that salt on the gilded wound. Uh, but you have this podcast, and we were fortunate enough to be guests on your podcast. Uh, what could go right? And and oftentimes. You know, we don't ask that question, what could go right? We're oftentimes thinking about what could go wrong, because to be to be honest and fair, there's a lot going wrong. Our, our communities are under immense pressure and stress. Climate change, pandemic, income inequality, voting rights being taken away, women losing their rights uh, to reproductive health. Uh, but, you know, let's start with what could go right. And and let's, let's just take the lay of the land. It's mm-hmm. 2023. We're recording this in February. President Biden won the election. 22 midterms, it was supposed to be a red wave. That red wave was just a small trickle. If it wasn't for gerrymandering, in fact, Democrats could have won. Uh, Democrats somehow picked up the Senate. Uh, They've lost the House. Uh, And we have an election coming up in 2024. With that vantage point, what could go right in the next two years? So first, let me just say, I created the Progress Network, and we do this podcast, What Could Go Right, which is also a weekly newsletter. So if anyone wants to sign up, it's free. You know, just go to just go to the progressnetwork.org and it's like a weekly here are things going on in the world that are constructive and positive, at least from our vantage point, and may not have percolated through the noise of kind of dystopic despair. And but part of the point of this was not, hey, everything is going right and you're wrong to think that we're fucked, right? I 
I joked I would have liked to have called this maybe we're not fucked, but it's hard to get that in the feed without. I think you could get away with it. I think that I actually think might have gotten away with podcast it. And the download. point of that is like if things go as our fears and and legitimate anxieties predict, right? If there's rising authoritarianism in the United States and throughout the Western democracies, if climate change reaches some sort of 2012 tipping point and we go from sort of slow but steady degradation of, of our ability to live on the planet to kind of catastrophic, if um, the, the past pandemic is just a prelude to a really, really, you know, much more deadly pandemic that we're equally unprepared for. Look, all these things could happen. And the point of saying mm -hmm. what could go right is Given that the future is uncertain, there's an old line by Karl Popper in the mid 20th century saying the pathways of the future are, are unknown, and it's up to each of us to write that future well, meaning our decisions in the present in many respects shape that future. And so given that we don't know what that future is, we should at least be according an occasional moment to consider the possibility that we are overestimating the risks and dangers and that we're underestimating the possibilities. Not because I think I know, I just know that mm -hmm. that's honest. It's honest to be humble about what we don't know, which is the future. And it's honest to step away and go, maybe what we, what we perceive to be a clear and present danger, we're exaggerating. And you know, human societies have done this before. We were, we were convinced, we, whatever that we is, in 1960, that there was a really proximate chance that we were gonna destroy humanity in nuclear Armageddon. And that was a legit fear, right? But it didn't any, mm -hmm. come anywhere close to pass. So I'm just like laying that on the line, right? I am not saying, hey, everybody's wrong for thinking that there are all these dangers. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying we are limiting ourselves by not considering what's going right. And final point, I do think societies that get convinced that everything is going down and that's the only trajectory uh, can talk them, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So cultures that really believe there's no hope, it's very hard to galvanize change. And if you don't galvanize change, the greater likelihood that your no hope scenario is actually a more likely one. So there's that's now we can talk about the specifics about what I think might be going right. But that's I just wanted to kind of lay that online because it's very easy to go, oh, here's the here's this organization, these guys or these people and these women saying you shouldn't be so worried or or things are fine. Things are fine, right? No, that's not and, really and I, what I'm I, saying. Yeah, no, and I I think that that's right because you know on this show and I and and we we mentioned this on on yours, which is that you know. I am ye that carries around a mustard seed of hope. Um, but in all honesty, I say that as a joke, but in all honesty, if I wasn't hopeful, then I wouldn't turn on a mic every day, right? If I wasn't right. hopeful about the ability to shift people's hearts and minds and expand what it is that they believe that they have power or control over, I wouldn't bother doing what I do for a living. Um, so I, I say that, that, as Waj and you have laid out, we are in a time of great despair where things that we thought would never happen in our lifetime seem to be happening all the time. Whether it is the fact that we would have never thought in our lifetime that we would be quarantined in our homes for three, four, five, six months, depending on where you were living and where you are. We never thought in our lifetime that there would be cities in the United States where the drinking water, we're not sure if it's poisoned or that we know that politicians did purposefully, you know, create a or or uh, or create crumbling infrastructure and not invest because there were people of color that were there or poor people, uh, poor white people that were there. And we don't really care about them. We didn't think in our lifetimes that we would keep seeing historic 
flooding and hurricanes and all of these things. And so it is really difficult to kind of pull yourself out of the tragedy and move to a place of hope. And so Zachary, I guess the question that I have for you is for those people who are not wrong to your point, uh, to be kind of in, uh, feel like they're in a downward spiral, right? What, what points do you kind of hold in recent history or, or, you know, or distant history that point to the fact that we're kind of always in an ebb and flow. So here's one that I think people don't sufficiently digest as, wow, that's incredible. Three years ago at about this time, everything sort of shuts down. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether they shut down more or less and, you know, Florida versus New York or Singapore versus Brazil. It, you know, at some point in March of 2020, all of humanity for the first time in, in any point in human history was simultaneously afflicted with both the same disease and the same crisis in real time with the awareness of everyone else and had to grapple with this in an extraordinarily tectonically disruptive fashion. Never before happened. Right. World War Two was a big deal. But if you were living in Chile or you were living in, you know, Sudan, it was like over there. It didn't this was like a simultaneously simultaneous human crisis playing out in real time in ways that I certainly, you know, it was the only time in my life that I was genuinely scared that all of my mm. assumptions about what the world is were going to become null and void. You know, there was going to be some sort of Cormac McCarthy, the road or like the last of us. And and that was it, right? I would, I joke. Uh, like not happy endings to... for those who have not read that book or played that video game. A yes, I know that's, that's right. And and I said to my kids at the time, it's a lot more fun in my historian hat to write about major historical inflection points. It like sucks to live through them. And yeah. within six months, we humanity people develop a set of vaccines, which we then deploy more rapidly than anyone thought was possible. July of 2020, mm. you're like, oh, it'll be two years. There's no way we're going to have to muddle through this. No chance. And not just the United States, although Operation Warp Speed, you know, and I think we should be bipartisan about this, right? This was not a really Republican Democrat thing. This was like humanity going, oh, shit, <laughs> we may all die. So what are we going to do to make sure that we don't? And develops based on technologies that have been in play beforehand, but have been lying dormant based on testing more algorithmically and more, uh, uh, through computer programs and just massive human population studies. And not only do, do we develop these set of vaccines, but what we deploy them. And look, Sinovac, the Chinese vaccine doesn't work as well, but it's still actually a vaccine that worked, just didn't work as mm. well. The fact that we were able to do that in a year, right? Mm-hmm. From March of 2020 mm-hmm. to the spring of 2021, and then global. And even in the fall of 2020, people are like, oh, you know, we're, we're buying all the supply. The rest of the world is going to have adequate supply. Even that was ameliorated. Even that massive supply came online. And I think the fact that we were able to dampen the negative effects of this, of this virus, uh, you know, the vaccine didn't cure, it didn't stop you from getting sick. It just stopped many more people from dying. And it kind of even more allowed society to kind of resume something resembling forward motion so that we can all now have these debates about the Republicans in Congress or, oh my God, what if Trump gets elected? Which, frankly, relative to like society collapsing under the weight of a pandemic that might have been much more lethal, is actually a better thing, right? I would rather currently have the argument yeah. about what's going on in 2024 than a world of like societal collapse based on the pandemic. Second thing that we were able to do, first time ever, galvanize collective resources, 
find a cure, deploy it, and also blow apart all the canards about what government is able to do in terms of direct payments in real time with immediacy. Europeans did mm. it, the Chinese did it, the Indians did it. Everybody in the world, governments just said, oh my God, <laughs> if people freak out economically and materially because they're worried about dying because they can't go to work, then it won't even matter how lethal this disease is because we'll just destroy society anyway, you know, if a billion people just freak out. So what does the United States do? We start sending people money. Yeah, it was incredibly clunky. And the fact that computer programs and government agencies and like Newark, were, uh, Newark, New Jersey, were still using COBOL programs from the, you know, remember there's this, anybody know COBOL, yep. anybody? Um, but nonetheless, <laughs> within a few months, money was flowing. And, and government spent, you know, in the United States, it was $6 trillion just in federal spending and another trillion dollars, another $4 trillion in what the Federal Reserve took onto its balance sheet. And then all of the EU and all of China, you know, basically 20 plus trillion dollars of money just opens up and we're like, yeah, we can actually send people money to make them feel more economically secure and take care of their needs. That's amazing. You know, we'd spent most of the 20th century going, nah, can't do it. Can't do it. Just can't do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying there hasn't been, we're not retreating from that. I'm not saying like it's, it, it's created a new normal, but it is surely uh silence the belief that you can't do that and that the doing of that can't be effective. So those are two things in recent memory. Am I putting a positive spin on things? I suppose I am. But I also think factually everything I just stated is true. It's true. And we don't digest that adequately, I think. So let me push mm-hmm. back on that good news and dampen it, uh, if I may, because <laughs> I think first and foremost, you're right. We collectively have not taken a moment to really acknowledge how remarkable it is that scientists were able in such a short time come up with a vaccine that saved lives. Uh, I mean, it's remarkable. Uh, It's to the point where people are like, eh, a pandemic, even though it's still around and kills people, right? But like people can resume their lives for the most part. The, The flip side to that, Zachary, is now we're living in 2023 where the same people who champion vaccines like Ron DeSantis are campaigning in 20, for their 2024 election campaign by attacking science, literally attacking science, attacking vaccines, attacking the vaccine makers, where ignorance and being dumb about literature and books and history is rewarded. And hospitals and doctors are being attacked because people are saying that they're part of this quote-unquote groomer conspiracy. Vaccine hesitancy is now a top 10 global threat, according to the World Health Organization. And otherwise, brilliant people who should know better will rather flirt with death than take a vaccine and would rather their children potentially get COVID or shot at school than read a book written by Toni Morrison. So the flip to that is everything you said is right. But folks are saying, in my lifetime, I have never seen otherwise intelligent folks reject vaccines and literally dance with the angel of death. Hmm. Because what you just stated were facts, but facts don't matter anymore. Because people make up their own facts. You know, people feel their facts. So you know, if you look at the arc of history, especially American history, it takes time, you know, step by step. Women didn't have the right to vote. You know, gay folks weren't allowed to be married. I, people who look like me weren't allowed to come to America, thanks to the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act. But we've never really dealt with this type of propaganda at this level being consumed by so many people at the same time. You know, how do we get to that progress point? How do we move forward as a collective if collectively, we are sharing different realities. Yeah, I mean, my, my response to some of that is, and I have talked about that over the years during Trump, 
So in a nutshell, right, if you were going to describe my attitudes towards Trump, it would have been, you know, he's an odious authoritarian narcissist. But the idea that American history was like dancing along in, in, a, in a nice, simple, you know, Marcus of Queensbury rules of polite engagement where people of different opinions genteely engage one another in a consensual democracy where we all kind of worked out our problems is both a liberal and conservative myth of our past. And that we have this real tendency to kind of look at our past on both sides, right? You know, liberals look at the 1960s and go, wow, isn't it great? We passed the Civil Rights Act. We passed the Voting Rights Act. We, we created Medicare. We created Medicaid. We, we remediated the broken promise of, of the New Deal. And, and we, it was great. We're done. You know, we like, we did it. We did it. We did it. <laughs> and then the right kind of does like we're the self-correcting mechanism. At the end, we all come together. I, I, think, I think the reality is... Um, you know, anti-science, anti-elitism, heartland versus coast, hatred of, of, of technocrats and people who think they know better and, and the scorn that, uh, I mean, like those currents are powerful in American society, powerful. And I think at some point, you know, too many people forgot the, the underside of who we always have been. And therefore, I don't look at what's going on in the present with nearly the same degree of despair, almost because I, I look at the past with, I hope, a much more realistic uh, view of just how problematic we've always been. You know, so I don't necessarily see us as backsliding. I see us as you know, back to your kind of ebb and flow, but it's more, there's a lot of unrequited, prob unrequited promises and unresolved problems that the past few years I think have, have made impossible to ignore. Um, and, and I, you know, there's a, there's a scenario in which the hobgoblins of our nature that have been kept at bay by elite institutions mm. and other stuff are finally unleashed and will never be put back and are going to consume us. So that's one possible trajectory. The other is in order to really ever move forward, um, those forces have to be seen in the light of day. They have to be challenged. Uh, and some of the people who support them are not supporting them because they buy into them. They're supporting them for other reasons. That that also has to be dealt with and addressed. So, you know, here too, some of how we see what's going on in the present will, perforce, depend on how we look back at it in the future. Meaning, some of these issues we will either see as the harbingers of something really bad, or we will see them as the cresting of something that finally got pushed back. And you know, it I don't know the answer to that. From The New Yorker staff writer Vincent Cunningham, a keenly observed novel of a young black man searching for his place in the world amidst a moment of historic change. Great Expectations is about David's 18 months working for the senator's presidential campaign. Along the way, David meets a myriad of people who raise a set of questions, questions of history, art, race, religion, and fatherhood that forced David to look at his own life anew and come to terms with his identity as a young black man and father in America. Inspired by the author's experiences working on Obama's 2008 presidential campaign, Cunningham uses a political campaign as his narrative backbone. Great Expectations will be one of the talked about novels of the year, Colin McCann. Great Expectations is available wherever books are sold. Hey, I'm Alok, the host of Build the Change. 
a brand new podcast from MacBlue about the people at the center of progress. Join us on a journey across the country as we uncover stories about the everyday folks working together to build something bigger than themselves. Real change. You'll hear from students in Appalachia advocating for LGBTQ-friendly books in their communities, healthcare workers providing telehealth abortions across the country, immigrant farm workers fighting for their safety in the blazing sun, and candidates in states with razor-thin margins. Listen to Build the Change now wherever you get your podcasts. Is there then in this moment, right? Because I I often say that I believe that there comes a point in our in our lives, in society, where the systems that we're supposed to carry, the systems that we're supposed to work, break down. They're, they were created in a different time for different people, right? And that in that breakdown, the break, breaking down of things is necessary, right? There needs to be some type of great excavation that happens, a great unearthing in order for us to till new land, right? Uh, whether that is emotionally, intellectually, right, to till new land in order to create something new, but that in order for the new to come, right, there is a destruction, a breakdown that needs to happen. I'm wondering, though, in your, you know, in in, in your understanding and in your in your research and uh, of of like this country and the world, is there ever a time when the breakdown that occurs and then the and then the rising? that follows isn't one that is violent because where, 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 where my concern and where my mind often goes as we see escalated rhetoric, um, you know, towards particular groups, whether they're, whether it's, uh, anti-blackness, anti-Semitism, anti, you know, anti-LGBTQ, um, I- I'm here in New York and there was just a woman arrested for burning a gay flag in Soho of all, of all places. And now is being charged 30 years old with a hate crime. And I'm saying to myself, is there a way, has there ever been a way for societies to move through without violence being the violence being the 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 on ramp to this change? Look, it's a really it's a really good question. Um, A lot of human history has been marked by, you know, spurts and, and outgrowth of intense violence, intense violence in the face of, you know, intense wrongs. Um, I, you know, I suppose to some degree, the reality is that the civil rights movement in the United States, while there was definitely violence, you know, the the protesters were attacked, they were beaten. There were certainly some who were murdered. The, the amount of violence proportional to the amount of change was not, it was a pretty favorable ratio, you know, meaning most of that was in fact peaceful. Most of that was bodies on the streets. Most of that was done without kind of violence you're talking about. Um. And frankly, I think, you know, absent truly authoritarian governments, of which there are a handful in the world, but they're not a huge number, right? We can kind of name them. I mean, there's, you know, Iran and North Korea and and Syria isn't even, it's a a repressive failed state like South Sudan and Congo. Uh, You know, a lot of the change, because it's so, so much of what we do now is so digital, both our rage and our hope and our, our communication. Mm, mm-hmm, and it's a really mm-hmm. interesting question about whether or not like mass violence as a, as an outgrowth of a system breaking down is really in the cards or whether we've actually gotten almost too good at 
creating mm. a framework of like a material sustainable framework a la what we did in 2020 we just spent a lot of money and instead of society completely unraveling people just you know may do so like i don't know the answer to that question in the future i think uh the world in general is just less violent the fact that we pay attention to the places where it is intensely violent doesn't actually mean that it is more violent on, on a per capita average. And I guess I do believe that we are much more likely to be in this just like chaotically noisy roilingness um, more than we are likely to be in a situation of, of literal civil war. There's a lot of rhetorical civil war. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. We, you know, we're talking about the rhetorical civil war. We're talking about the January 6th violence direction. We're talking about Yes, the majority has found a way to live. America did not descend into pure chaos, even during a pandemic, even with the January 6th violent insurrection, right? Life, it went on. Even after 9-11, uh, if you all remember, life went on. So we, the, the system's held to a point. But there also comes the warning signs, right? The DEFCON 3s, the historians who said, listen, we're at a precipice. Like, yeah, we're okay now. But, uh, you know, just a couple of moves here and there and we can be looking at Hungary 2.0. And Viktor Orban, for our listeners, we've mentioned him before, is the, the fighter for the right wing, right? Uh, a right wing authoritarian leader who has used xenophobia to entrench basically, basically one party rule in Hungary. And Republicans like Tucker Carlson are openly saying, that's a good model for America. This guy's, this guy's onto something. You know, Steve Bannon called him Trump before Trump. And so, you know, we had this conversation earlier. I'm sitting there thinking, you know, Zachary, you're an optimist. I, I try to be optimistic. And we oftentimes say, oh, both sides, kumbaya, come together. Uh, but as a student of history, even if you look at the 60s and 50s, people think, oh, yeah, overnight, you know, Rosa Parks sat down and there was Martin Luther King and he said some nice speeches. And, and, and then, you know, people saw uh, Sidney Poitier date a white girl. And all of a sudden, you know, everyone had a good time and wore disco pants. It wasn't like that. In fact, the reality is a lot of those folks never got done with their racism. It never yeah. left their hearts. They right. died with that anti-blackness and you know xenophobia. They went to church. They baked apple pies. They kissed their kids. 
there were good average Jose's and Joe's. But I think there's this myth that says, oh, we, we will win over everyone. And my take on this is, and I've shared this with you and Danielle, is I think, and I want your take on this, we will win over at most 60 to 65%. I think we have lost about a third, especially with disinformation, in our lifetime. No matter what I do, I cannot reach them, Zachary. If I'm nice, the funny Muslim, the moderate Muslim, meet them at the Rust Belt. I've done it all. Gone to Pennsylvania, Ohio. They don't care. What they'll say at most is, you're the good one. You're the good darkie. Why can't the rest of them be like you? And so how do we move forward when, and you could disagree with me, I think we will not win the third. What do you do with the third that no matter what you say, no matter how nice you are, how moderate you are, no matter how much you bring facts, they're convinced that the three of us are pedophiles who are yep. trying to groom their children and eat their ch- children and convert this country into socialist Sharia uh, utopia because we're commanded by our devil overlords. All right. So first thing, yeah, a lot of historians uh, rang the klaxon of, oh, my God, we're on the precipice and look at Hungary and look at Poland. You know, the fact is Hungary uh, has had a, had a functional democracy for like a nanosecond. You know, there's not deeply entrenched institutions from, from 1989 to maybe, you know, 2004 or five, maybe 2010, if you're being generous. Although it was already starting to be undermined by then, or certainly Orban was trying. And in a relatively homogenous environment, I mean, we don't have to get into the particularities of Hungary's ethnic and, you know, socioeconomic mm-hmm. makeup, mm-hmm. but you know, it's probably fair to say that 60% of Hungarians actually support Orban. Yeah. Um, I suppose you can get into a scenario where 60% of the, of, of the populace of the United States would buy in either passively or ignorantly or uh, willfully blindly to a similar situation, the complete erosion of democratic institutions. I, it would be foolish to say that's impossible. Um, but again, this is back to kind of what was your take on the Trump years? You know, my take on the Trump years was that for all the profound erosion of norms at the at the White House level uh, and the attempt to you know, putting cronies in agencies like, you know, Zinke in, in the Interior Department being the most kind of egregious example of just pure corruption. Yeah. Um, and let's not, let's give a shout out to Scott Pruitt of the EPA. If we, yeah, if we although can. the EPA doesn't have as much ability to actually uh, uh, self-deal, meaning the, right. the Interior Department has awards a contract. I mean, it's harder to do with the EPA is just the point. Uh, I, I, I was more struck by how, how hard it was to get anything done. You know, my, my fear mm-hmm. at the time was like that Trump would use the pandemic to kind of do emergency powers. And there clearly were moments where he wanted to do that. There was such. And I guess the fear is like, OK, he would come in, he would recognize like, oh, yeah, you know, you can bend these institutions to your will more. I just need more loyalists. I need more. But it's like it's a re- you know, we, we, we don't have a simple government. Um, it's, it's both a virtue and a vice. The virtue part of it, it's actually really hard to get shit done. <laughs> and. I, I just I'm not as concerned about this as the people fulminating for for a lot of very specific reasons, you know, internal corruption, bureaucratic sclerosis, difficulty of really just getting stuff done, and you know you can you can only appoint so many judges so quickly. I mean, look, look, I'm sure we could have this debate back and forth about what the actual risk level is. You know, is it thirty mm-hmm, percent possibility? Mm-hmm. Is it ten percent possibility? Is it fifty? And we're all arguing about something that hasn't happened, which is mm-hmm. I mean, it's important to think through what are the real risks. Uh, but it's also important to recognize that we're arguing about something that hasn't happened. We're arguing about the likelihood of fear. And I, 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 I don't think historians uh, should be graced with a kind of oracular future authority. You know, they are capable of freaking out. And honestly, uh, 
it is more likely to get airtime on a major media network by arguing something extreme than arguing something moderate, right? I used to joke that, I mean, I was on CNBC for five years. I was on like 500 times. And then for a while, I played the liberal on Fox Business News, uh, which none of my friends watched. And I never watched Fox Business News, but I was like the designated liberal. And um, I was always the guy saying, hey, you know, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. And, and people would sometimes would say, well, it's, it's great that you're on. I'm sure people thought it was lousy I was on too, but people would sometimes say, it's great that you're on. Why aren't you on more? And I'm like, dude, given how I approach the world, it's extraordinary that I was on at all, right? Because I was always the guy saying, well, you know, maybe, I don't know. Is that really true? Do we really know that? And maybe that was good kind of comic relief juxtaposed to, you know, yes, 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 no, no, no. I was like, the, eh, I don't know. Okay. So I, I, that, that's kind of my general response to the, are we two steps away from Hungary? Or is it, is it, is it so mm -hmm. simple? It's mm -hmm. just like a, a step here and a move there. I walk to the left, a step to the right. You know, let's do the time walk again. That was a reference. I got it. We got it. Yeah, no, we're, got it. We're, we're, right. Two points. Uh, so I don't know. Rocky Horror Picture Show reference. We're, we're old heads. You know, I think that one, I, I appreciate this conversation so much because I do think that it is important as we contextualize, try to truly understand these unprecedented times that we are living in, times that we are seeing pandemics and climate change in real time and mass shootings on a regular basis to also be reminded what hasn't fallen apart. Right. Because I think that to your point, Zachary, it is very easy um, and it is ratings worthy to focus on what is falling apart and what could possibly fall apart as instead of focusing on what has held. And that isn't to dismiss uh, uh, at all the dangers that I still believe that we are in, that I still believe that are lurking, but it is to try and create a better oriented reality. I won't even say balanced. I'll just say a better oriented reality um, that doesn't just look one way all the time. And so, you know, as we close uh, today, you know, last question for you is when you look at, and I'm going to ask you to, you know, to shake a crystal ball and, you know, light your tea leaves and, you know, and take a sense of, where you see us, and I'll just go two years from now, as we head into really, you know, truly the presidential election, based on the trends and based on what you're seeing and how history has moved, even though we are, again, living in relatively unprecedented times, what's your best guess about what does end up turning out right? Yeah, so look, one would be foolish to discount the possibility that Donald Trump, A, might become the Republican nominee for president, and B, might become president. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a no, it's a non-negligible possibility. It's a real possibility. It's a, it's a genuine possibility. And, you know, I would assume greater competence of malicious intent in a second Trump administration, you know, learning from mm -hmm. mistakes. And even then, I sometimes wonder about, because, like, that's the only worst-case scenario that really makes sense. I mean, I, frankly, Ron DeSantis might scare me more. Like the idea of a competent Trump is actually much more alarming than an incompetent. Trump. I've said that. Mm -hmm. So could you have that? Yeah, you, you, you could. Uh, but honestly, I'm not, 
I don't I think Trump is unusual. He's unusually toxic energy that happened to find power. Every now and then you have that in history, right? And the test of a system is does the toxicity of an individual who gets elected poison the whole system or does the system itself, you know, have antibodies against that? And I suppose we could argue mm. about how many antibodies there were between 2017 and 2020, but I think most of the shit that happened in those 4 years have been happening in a lot of ways for a lot of time. You know, we had banned immigrants <laughs> We banned them in 1924. Yep. We banned them in the 1880s, all Chinese. You know, it's not like America. We, we, we jailed 125,000 Japanese Americans in World War II just because we, you know, thought there was a marginal possibility of, of espionage and uh, fourth column, but mostly because a lot of, you know, racist white uh, Californians had been coveting that land for decades and found approximate cause and, you know, used the fear, basically, right? Mm -hmm. So, Short answer is, I think it's way less likely than not that Trump gets elected. Uh, I am not in the camp that even if Trump does get elected, that it's all bets off and we're done. Because the flip side of him being more competent is a lot more people are a lot more aware of what's not acceptable. And again, hopefully we don't have to play these games in real time. Hopefully we don't have to argue about what we're going to do in reality. But we might, and we should be prepared to do so because it is a possibility, certainly if he gets the nomination. Uh, but I think 2022 is a much more likely guide to two years from now, meaning I think what happened mm. in 2022 That's is a more mm -hmm. outcome. Uh, mm -hmm. And remember, it's an outcome where, you know, someone like Ron DeSantis, who Democrats don't particularly like and a lot of Republicans totally love, got, what did he get, 60 plus percent? of. I mean, he did really mm -hmm. well, mm. you know? And it's a it's a powerful program. So that's certainly something we could be facing. But I think we need to just face up too. So the crystal ball combined with the mirror. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My urging in the what could go right is that America becomes increasingly less capable collectively of denying the problems of who we've always been and much mm. more focused on dealing with them. And that's true on the right as well. Meaning there's a lot. I, this is a whole other show, right? A whole lot of people, I think, who supported Donald Trump because of the failure of government and the failure of elites to actually deal with real problems of real people, whether it's racial or economic, both, right? There's a lot of anger there that's genuine and legit and was ignored. Um, so uh, I, you know, my hope is that with clarity comes change. I, I, I recognize that may be naive, idealistic, and overly optimistic. But you asked, like, what my my view mm -hmm. of the future is. And I can assure you, it won't feel good at the time, no matter what happens. But the question is what it looks like over time. I like that. Zachary Carabell, thank you so much for making the time to join us on Democracy-ish. Folks, the podcast is What Could Go Right? Uh, Zachary is the founder of the Progress Network, uh, which you say puts out newsletters every week on what could actually go right, folks. So if you're looking for some more balance, some uh, perspective, uh, check that out. Uh, we greatly appreciate you making the time. Love the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. I'm Jatali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah.